Well, there is hardly anything more important than this, what we're talking about today on the Tuesday live stream. I'm uh, Pastor Mike Winger, and welcome to the Tuesday live stream. This is our weekly, yeah, I was going to say series, but it's more just a weekly video that we do every Tuesday at 5 p.m. live, and I encounter uh, different issues of theology and apologetics, the Christian life, but today it's basic, basic, basic. It's how to get saved, like how you, how you can have salvation through Jesus Christ. And this is the kind of thing where, you know, I could make so many videos and not think to cover this topic by itself. But today we're digging right in. Uh, what I want to do is I want to make sure that you understand clearly and understand well the gospel message at its core, uh, what Jesus did for us and how we can receive that, how we can actually be born again and, and have our lives transformed. And I'm going to describe some of those terms to you because some of that's going to be foreign to a few people. Uh, I want you to also be able to actually, yeah, get saved. And now you, you don't need to know everything I'm going to share in this video in order to have salvation. So I'm going to, cause I'm going to explain things in a bit more detail than what is absolutely the bare minimum of what you have to know. Uh, there's a link in the description to like a one minute gospel presentation. So that we have that down below. There's like a one minute short brief presentation of the gospel, but I want to give you a detailed explanation, an understanding of this issue um, in much greater detail. I think that's really important to do. And I'm also going to do this. I'm going to pray with you at the end if you want to pray right now live or as you're watching this video playback later on. If you want to pray to receive Christ, to be saved, you'll understand what you're doing here. And then I'm going to take a moment to lead you in that opportunity to pray. And so just hang on. That will be toward the end. Here's the good news of the gospel. In brief, this is this is a fun topic to, to discuss. It's the good news, man. This is this is what uh, what gets us going and keeps us going. It is the good news of God's incredible, incredible love for you and for me and for all of us, and His provision to give us forgiveness for our sins and an actual relationship with God, a real relationship with God that results in eternal life, eternal life with Him forever and each other. And this is through Jesus, through faith in Jesus. That's us fulfilling our ultimate purpose. This is what God's created us for. This is what we've been designed for. We're like made for this kind of relationship and it's achieved through Christ. Now there's one verse in the Bible in particular that I think just sort of like says it all. And so we're going to be looking at a bunch of Bible verses tonight, but I want to start with this one verse because I think Romans chapter 10 verse 9 gives us like a really good, simple, boom, here's the whole story. Here's the whole story of the gospel. And it's, some people make this way more complicated than it needs to be. Romans 10, 9 makes it real simple. So let me see if I can get the uh, Bible verse up here for you guys to look at and make it a little bigger. Romans 10, 9. This is the verse. It says right here, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean... The simplicity of the gospel is beautiful. Now it's, it's simple, but it's one of those things. It's almost like one of those, um, uh, I've seen them do these fractals where they zoom in and just, you just keep getting more and more detail as you keep zooming in. And that's kind of what the gospel is. It's this beautifully simple thing, but there's all this detail as we zoom in and we're going to zoom in tonight to understand this more, more carefully and more accurately. Like, what does it mean to confess with my mouth? What does that mean? Uh, what is it that I'm being saved from? And is that really all that I need to do? Is that really it? And, and it is, if you understand it properly. And what happens to me when I do this? Like, what happens when I actually take the step of faith? What happens to me? So we're going to talk first about the issue of what we are saved from. 
what we're saved from. And uh, in order to do this, we're going to have to have an honest conversation about the issue of sin. Uh, an honest conversation. I'm not here. Uh, to, I'm not going to be yelling at you. I'm not going to be, you know, doing anything like that. Um, and I'm in the same boat as everyone else. In fact, that's the whole message. The, the The bad news sort of precedes the good news when it comes to the gospel. I gave you the good news of salvation, but you're like, salvation from what? Well, that's the sin issue. That's the bad news. And we have to understand and comprehend the issue of our sin if we're to understand the cross, if we're to understand what believing in Jesus means and why we need forgiveness in the first place. Now, what is sin? Um, sometimes Christianese can get in the way here. And these, that would be words Christians are using a lot that maybe the world's not using. The world doesn't usually use the word sin. Uh, not typically, I don't think. I think that uh, another way to put it would be moral wrongdoing. Moral wrongdoing. And sin, moral wrongdoing would refer to the internal acts of moral wrong. That is that is in my, my fantasies. They're not just passing thoughts. Those aren't necessarily sinful behaviors, but it's fantasies in my mind, um, harboring things like bitterness or malice or hatred against other people, um, harboring lust, uh, those types of things. That would be moral wrongdoing internally. Also, there's the external moral wrongdoing of sins. And you, you can name a list if you want of, of theft and lying and um, you just name violence, uh, adultery, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on. The list is never ends because we are always inventing new sins. Um, so it's moral wickedness. Now, the message of the gospel is to say, hey, um, before the, the, the cross saves you, you, you must realize that there is simply this condition we are all experiencing where we've all done moral wrongdoing. We've all committed sin. And this is much more significant than most of us realize. So a verse I want to take you to in the Bible, because this is, you know, Jesus his, his gospel message is preserved here in the pages of the Bible. And it says right here, it is, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one, not even one that there's literally nobody who's out there just doing good, being a good, a quote, good person. Now, this is this hits people strangely because they think, but wait, no, but Mike, you're, I'm a good person. I mean, I'm a good person. Yeah, I have issues, but I'm a good person when it comes down to it. And I'd like to I'd like to um, help clarify what we mean by the issue of sin, that we're not saying here that um, uh, every single thing that any any person has ever done has always been totally depraved and wicked. And I don't think that that's the message. Rather, we do need to see how bad we actually are though. That, that's the issue. We're not really seeing exactly how bad we are. Romans tells us that everyone sin and falls short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 here. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But people aren't realizing that this, there's a connection here between sin and the glory of God. That is that my wicked behavior is being compared to something. It's being compared to God's glory. And it's in the light of God and his holiness and his glory, that I realized that my sin is actually a much bigger issue than I previously realized because I was only comparing it to other people around me. And that's the mistake we make. We often compare our sins to other sinners around us. And so we don't feel like we're really all that sinful or all that bad or all that morally compromised. But in, in reality, we are. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, how big of a deal is it? Well, let me give you a, a fun analogy. <laughs> Hopefully I don't get copyright issues because of this. But th this is the, the freeze. This video I'm about to share with you is, the, is a guy named The Freeze. And he apparently shows up at Braves games or did. I don't know if he still does or not. And he suits up and he gets, and he's like a superhero, so to speak. And he races against a, uh, a person from the audience, from the stands. And they bring this guy out and they give this random dude a 200-foot lead. And then 
they let the freeze go and you'll watch the freeze see if if uh, if he can beat the guy when the guy has a 200 foot lead and this to me is a great illustration of us when we forget that we're being compared to god with our sin issues and not just to other sinners so here check this video out yeah i don't have the audio on but you see the guy running there here he's right there and then there's the freeze okay he's coming he's coming and if you'll notice the guy doesn't realize he's being compared to the freeze. He's not aware of this, so he thinks he's doing pretty good. He looks like a slug to us, but he feels like he's doing good. He's going to celebrate early a little bit here in a second. There he goes. Look how great I am. Oh, oops. <laughs> so, and he eats it. I feel bad for that guy. He became a parable. <laughs> and he eats it. And the message is this. It's, it's that without realizing that the guy he was being compared to was that good, he was celebrating. He thought, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm wonderful. And this is what we do with our sin. I think, well, I'm not so bad. And I compare myself to other people who are also sinners, who are also morally compromised. And I don't realize that the one who I'm truly being compared to is holy, is God. And when I'm throwing my hands up, I'm a good person. If I look over my shoulder and I see God and his holiness and I go, whoa, Lord, you are holy. You're not just good. You're perfect. Perfect. Then I realize that I'm in a lot of trouble and I fall on my face, so to speak. And that's a healthy thing. This is not a bad thing. This is a healthy self-awareness. This is Christian self-awareness. I realize I'm actually a problematic sinner. This is this is the issue of sin. How big of a deal is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Um, let me give you one, uh, not, not, not a uh, video from the internet, but let me give you scripture that helps us understand this. I think there's an illustration of this with Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a good person as far as people go. So I don't mind using that phrase. He was a good guy, right? But as far as people go, but when he encountered God, he realized in God's holiness that he had major sin problems. And let's read through his experience, his vision where he sees God and he realizes, oh man, I've got major sin issues. And this is like one of the major steps we need to take as we're uh, accepting the gospel of Christ. In Isaiah 6, 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when they talk about God, they, they refer to God as holy, holy, holy. This is three times in a row the same word because they're trying to emphasize how incredibly holy. God is absolutely and totally perfect. He's morally flawless. He's perfect in every motive and in every action, in every way. He's perfect. But look at how that awareness of God's perfection, of God's moral goodness, how it affects Isaiah and how maybe it should affect you and me. It says, in the foundations of the threshold thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, and I said, woe is me for I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah saw not only that he had sin issues, but when he saw how holy God was, he saw the sin of all the people around him too. He was like, we're all in so much trouble. What can be done? What can be done? And then God, of course, has a solution, which we're talking about today. The solution. I'm just here pointing out the problem. Uh, now, maybe you're already aware of, of sin issues in your life because God's given you a conscience. Uh, according to Romans 1, we see this, that God's giving us a conscience and the conscience is there to show us when what we're doing is good or when what we're doing is bad. Now, we can get a seared conscience or a hard conscience, but I think that if the Holy Spirit's working in your life right now, then you're aware of sin. 
it's it doesn't i don't have to beat you over the head to tell you about this in issue it's like you're aware of it naturally you you know that there's issues you know that there's problems you know that there's things that you you're ashamed of and if you if you stood before god it would be like oh woe is me so you're already aware of this um, when you think of God, perhaps, or some, sometimes maybe if you try to pray and you become aware of the, of the guilt issues that are going on, this, is, this, this can be a bad thing if you stop there, but it can be a wake-up call to help us see that we've got sin issues. Um, it's even the Holy Spirit working in our life. It may, in fact, be God reaching out to you to show you that there's these sin problems that he wants to solve, but he wants you to be aware of them. You've got to know the diagnosis before you understand the cure, right? In John 16, 8, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit actually will convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And so we've got these, this awareness of like, oh, I have sin issues. And then there's the result of sin. So let's, let's talk about that uh, for a second here. That's like the, the bad news, right? The, the sin of mankind and the result of this sin that comes upon us. Uh, the result is a few things. It's separation from God relationally. That's one of the results. Isaiah 59, 2, God says to Israel, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And so that you know, God, when we sin, we create separation from God. Now we, we get this in our relationships. Like if I sin against my wife, if I lie to her and I, I am cruel to her, it's going to create relational separation. Not, maybe not physical exactly, but relational separation. And God's saying that this is the case with him, except the offenses against him are even worse because he's perfectly holy. And so it creates a relational separation. We see this in the Bible when Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. This is a picture of the fact that sin, they eat of the forbidden fruit, sin causes a break in the relationship. That's one of the consequences. And when you come to Christ, when you receive Christ, this relationship is fixed. It is repaired. You enter into a real and healthy and right relationship with God. But before Christ, Colossians 1.21 tells us that we are alienated from God, that we're enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. So that every thought of sin, every act of sin is, is a rejection ultimately of God himself. And that's the sad state of mankind. There's other consequences to sin, and that is, well, God is judge. Scripture teaches us that God is a holy and righteous and just judge. Common sense gets you to understand this as well, because you see you see uh, inequality, and you see wickedness, and you see cruelty in the world, and you think, God, you know, God's, God's got to get that person. God's got to deal with that person. God's got to come down on that guy. Like, he can't just, just get away with it. If God is just, he'll deal with that sin. The, the other side of the coin is, but wait a minute, but I'm a sinner too. But I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a woman of unclean lips. Like I, I, I'm the one who has sin in my heart, sin in my life. God's going to deal with me too. And Jesus actually spoke about this a lot. I know a lot of people don't want to talk about these issues uh, nowadays, but this is, this is part of the gospel message is that there is final judgment where we're given perfect justice for our sin. And that is a, a scary reality. Jesus talked about it more than any of the other uh, people in the Bible actually talked about the issue of hell, the issue of judgment. And that is the, uh, the final future thing that's going to happen. We will stand before God and we will deal with our sins and be judged. And so it sounds like some pretty bad news, but this is only, we're only here showing you what it is that Jesus fixes, the problem that Jesus is solving, the, the, the consequences Jesus is saving us from. This is what we're trying to understand here. Romans 6.23 puts it this way. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So my wages, like the thing I've earned through sin, that would be death. And in the Bible, there's like, it's not just physical death. It's like separation from God and judgment and hell. That's what it's talking about in those contexts. So I have a great need and uh, my goodness just isn't going to do it. I'm, I'm not good enough. Like I've, I've already failed the test. I've already walked in intentional and purposeful sin. 
So then we get to the message of Jesus, where Jesus, he's going to provide forgiveness through his death and resurrection. But here's where I think a lot of people already, um, they already get confused because sometimes people have like this sort of kindergarten version of Jesus in their head. And as they grow up and become an adult, they still keep that kindergarten level of understanding Jesus in their head. And this Jesus is a, is a mix, right? It's a mix of, of culture, cartoons, and misunderstandings that you've gathered throughout your life, perhaps. I'm amazed at how many people don't actually understand why Jesus was crucified. Like, what did it do? What his death on the cross accomplished for us? What was the purpose behind that? Why, why was this something that, according to Jesus, it had to happen? He says he must be crucified. He must, and he must rise three days later. That this, like, had to happen. So what was the purpose of it? Um, well, let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament. And, and you don't need to know the Old Testament to understand what I'm going to share with you because I'm going to kind of catch you up. I think that what God does in the Old Testament is he frequently draws these long pictures, these big pictures using the people of, of, of the Old Testament and the historical events happening there. He draws pictures that are meant to like be sort of like a, an allegory of what Jesus ultimately does for us. And so here's an example of that. Um, and it has to do with the nation of Israel. So in the scripture, God calls one nation to be like his people, to be, to be faithful to him and he'll be, he'll be faithful to them, to be loyal to him and he'll be loyal to them. And they have this, this, this calling to walk in holiness and then God will bless them. And this is kind of like our situation right now. Hey, if you if you live a perfect life, great, you're going to be great before God. But if you sin, there's going to be trouble. So Israel's given the law the law of the Old Testament. And this is something as a Christian, I'm not under the law, but I learned from the law. And the law of the Old Testament given to Israel was to show them ultimately that they're failures morally. I know that sounds a little counterintuitive sometimes, but this is the purpose. So God gives them the law and he says, if you obey these rules and all these laws, I'll bless you. If you disobey them, I'll curse you. Then if you read on in the Old Testament, you see Israel, what do they do? They disobey over and over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, it's just a catalog of the failures of Israel, this, the disobedience to God's laws. And so they're going to have separation from God and they're going to have judgment from God. What did I say? The consequences of sin are separation and judgment. And these are the things they're going to experience. So what does God do? There's a solution. The solution is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament law. And so God says, I want to dwell with you, but I can't because you're wicked people. So you'll offer these sacrifices and these sacrifices will be things that are meant to pay for your sin, to create fellowship between me and you, and to give you forgiveness for your sins. And that's the picture of that whole interchange of the two sort of sides of the law, the rules of what you have to do to obey, and then the sacrifices that are there to pay for the disobedience, to create fellowship and connection with God and forgiveness. So this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus comes... Jesus shows up and he's doing this for us, not in a picture in the Old Testament. He's doing this for for us in real time, in real life, and for all of the world. See, Israel here was just like, um, uh, they were just like a test case, in a sense, um, a, uh, a dress rehearsal, so to speak. Like, this is just meant to be a picture of what Jesus is going to come and do in reality. These animal sacrifices are just meant to be a demonstration of the kind of thing that Jesus is going to ultimately do for us. So Jesus comes and what does he do? He, he shows up, he lives a perfect, sinless life. He's the only truly good person. He's the freeze in this case. He successfully runs the race perfectly. He is perfect. And then he dies sacrificially. And that's the part of the cross I think people don't understand oftentimes. Is that Jesus on the cross, when I say he died for me, 
I mean, he died sacrificially, like he died in my place, just like those sacrifices would be killed in the place of the offering of the offerer of the person bringing them in the Old Testament times. Jesus comes and he says, I'm going in your place. I'm going to die for you. There's a, a verse where we can get this from Jesus himself. And it's in Matthew 26, 28. Oh, and I should say, guys, I'm going to take your questions tonight, as I always do at the end of the live stream. Just put a capital Q in the live chat right now if you have a question for me. But but for tonight only, uh, I only want questions on this topic. So something that relates to something I'm saying in today's video, to the topic of how to be saved, that's what I want to deal with uh, exclusively in the questions tonight. So please put those in the, in the live chat. So Matthew 26, 28 says, For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This, what we, what we hear with Jesus right here is he's tying the picture together between the Old Testament law and sacrifices and what he's doing on the cross. He's talking in Matthew 26 about how he's going to go to the cross and die. And he describes that his death is going to be him pouring out his blood, like as if it were an offering, as if it were a sacrifice offering where they would pour the blood out. And he says it's in a new covenant or a new, like uh, a covenant's kind of like a contract where God's like, here's the deal. I'm going to die for your sin and you can be forgiven. That's what he's saying. It's for the forgiveness of sins to wash us clean of our, of our sins. And this is what we mean when we're talking about the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's what we're referring to. So he has a vicarious atonement. He dies like in my place when he goes to the cross, like that sacrifice did in the old Testament times. And then he rises from the dead. His resurrection is to show victory. The resurrection of Jesus gives us like this, this proof that he succeeded in his task, right? That when I, I died for you and then I want to show you that this victory is real and that the eternal life that I'm offering you is real. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, give you a sample of that power and victory and that eternal life by rising from the dead. So his resurrection is, is like a, a, a proof of concept that people do nowadays, right? I want to show you that this is real and that this works, that faith in me is real. So my resurrection is the assurance of that. Look, I'm alive and alive forevermore. And so you, when you believe in me, you too will be forgiven and alive forevermore. So then we get to John 3.16. And we have this verse that everyone knows. Or at least they think they know it. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That word so is often misunderstood in this verse. What, it's, what it means is God so loved the world um, we, we sometimes think it means he loved us so much. And there's, there's truth in that. Like he loved us so much that he gave his own son. But what it really means, I think here is God so loved the world or God loved the world in this way. He loved the world in this way. How did he love us? He gave us his only son. Jesus is the son of God who's dying in our place for our sin. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's agenda here is a rescue operation for, for sinners. He's coming to save the, the wicked people, the woe is me people, the people who are, are, are aware of their sinful state and they want forgiveness and they want salvation. It's the incredible love of God. He, he sent his son. The results of this, Hebrews 4.16, are that we can now, and this is a bit of like biblical language that you may not be familiar with, but let me explain it. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This, this whole verse, it's a beautiful, amazing verse, and it connects to all the pictures of the Old Testament and everything. But the basic idea is this, is because of what Jesus did, even though I'm a sinner, I can come confidently to God who would, who would in other cases, judge me. 
But instead I say, no, Jesus has saved me. I can come for your grace, which means um, getting what I don't deserve. And I can be washed and clean of my sins, forgiven. This is why we worship. We're grateful. This is why Christian worship isn't just like an action that we do because we're supposed to do this at certain times of the week or something like that. But it's an action of a heart that says, God, you've loved me. I was this down in the dirt sinner and you loved me. I was in rebellion and foolishness and I rejected you and I did my own thing, but you loved me. I deserve to pay for my sin, but you paid for my sin. That's why we worship. Now, this gets into the issue of just who Jesus is in the first place, though. And there's, I don't want to get too much into the details of this, but Jesus is, he's God with us. He's the son of God. And so he's like actually God. Now this, in our modern minds, this is what we go, wait, Jesus is God himself. And we trip out on that a little bit in our modern minds. But I think that what is more amazing is that he's a human. The thing that should cause us to trip out in the context of the cross is that Jesus is a human, is that God came and took on a human form. The fact that he's human is the, is the amazing thing, is the thing that blows my mind. Because what he does when he comes up as a human is he comes to then represent all humans. He's like, I will be you. I will represent all of you. And I will pay for your sin. All of it on the cross. That this is God rescuing us from the, the punishment of our sin by taking it upon himself. That is the remarkable thing about Jesus on the cross. So when I see Jesus on the cross, I can say, uh, you, those nails were, were, at least metaphorically, those nails are meant for me. That that, that death is ultimately meant for me or coming my way. And you got in the way and you took it for me so that I could be forgiven, so that I could be forgiven. And then we get, we get to the question of, um, what exactly do you have to do? Let's go back to that verse, Romans 10, nine. Let's, let's bring it back because this is the, what do I do to get saved then? After hearing all that, I think people might actually start to miss the point and complicate things too much. Romans 10, nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Well, what do we mean by these things? Let me start with the second phrase, right? These two things you're supposed to do. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. So if I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, what I'm believing is I'm believing that Jesus was actually risen. Like there's just an intellectual belief. I think Jesus was actually risen. And some of you are like, I'm already there. I already, yeah, I think Jesus rose. I think that there's good historical evidence for it. Um, or perhaps maybe the Holy Spirit's just working in your life. You just know it's true. You don't know how you know. You just know it's true because God's just simply working in your heart in that way. And so you just know it's true, but there's, there's more to this belief because this word believe or pistuo in the Greek, the word, it means to trust, to entrust. This is about relying on. So I'm not only knowing that Jesus rose, I'm relying upon it. That's the step that you need to take now to say, okay, I know it's true. I know it's true, but I need to rely on it. I need to choose to trust. I need to rely upon him to be my salvation and my forgiveness. That's the believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead thing, an intellectual belief as well as a sense of commitment to trust and rely upon the work of Christ that he's done for you. But then there's this other part. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and a lot of people will misunderstand this. They'll think, so I'll have to just say the phrase, Jesus is Lord, now I'm saved. I just said it. And I think God doesn't really um, entertain fools all that much. If someone wants to go down that route, they can't. But I'm assuming you're not that guy. You're not that girl. You're not that kind of person. What are we saying when we say Jesus is Lord? What is this minimal understanding of how to get saved? It's simply the confession, an honest confession where you mean it, that this Jesus person who is the son of God who died and rose again, he's my Lord. 
he's my Lord, which means boss is not just a, a, a title like with no meaning. It means that he's, he's my boss. He's the king of my life. He's the king of, of all. And I'm yielding to him. And so when I trust in him, his death and resurrection for salvation, and I commit to him as Lord, I am saved. That's it. I just yield to Jesus, man. I just give in to Jesus. That, that would be another way to, to put it, I think. It's an attitude ultimately of turning from my, my rebellion against God, my sin, over to the lordship of God in my life, lordship of Jesus in my life. So this is where we get that word repentance. Repentance. And repentance doesn't mean you never fail again, you never sin again. It rather is just I have a certain way of living apart from God. I'm doing my own thing in my life. And now I'm turning to say, God, I'm coming underneath you. I'm committed to your life, your way of living. I believe and I entrust myself to you. I give in to your your way of living, your way of me living my life. I yield to all of it. Jesus, your Lord. That's what you're saying when you say Jesus is Lord. That is an attitude of repentance. And that's what we need. Now, I want to have an important side conversation about this. The idea of works and the place of good works in a Christian's life. The, the good works come after you're saved, not before. You don't do anything to, uh, to appeal to God, to make yourself desirable to God. You don't do something to get his favor or to get him to accept you. you literally, all you need for him to accept you is to just be a sinner who's turning to Jesus. That's it. End of story. But people complicate this and they think they have to do all these good works to be saved. And that's just not what the Bible teaches. So Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10, which says, for by grace, you've been saved by grace. That means you didn't earn it, right? Because it was by grace and you got saved. How? Well, through faith, you just believed I got free forgiveness. I just, I just trusted. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, meaning your works like Jesus's works. Yeah, but not yours. You didn't do anything to earn this forgiveness or this grace. And there's nothing you can do to get it. You just trust him for it. So he gets all the credit and it just causes you to love him and worship him so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Those things come after the, the results of my, of my repentance and turning to Jesus as Lord. It, it comes afterwards as God works in my life to serve him and to want even to follow him more. And so I do those good things that God prepared beforehand. I do them after I'm saved. Not to get saved, but as a result of that salvation. There, there are just countless people who, no matter how much times you say it, how many times you say it, they still think they have to be a better person to be saved. So let me, let me share with you the kind of person Jesus wants to pray this prayer. We're going to pray at the end of the, uh, the live stream. The kind of person. Luke 18, 9. Uh, Jesus tells, tells them a parable about some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Why? Because Jesus can't stand the idea that you think you're righteous because you're not. He wants you to live in the real world and to let him give you righteousness, not try to be a good person on your own. You just aren't. So he tells them the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee is going to be like the, the guy who thinks he's righteous. The tax collector is the guy who thinks he's, he's a total dirtbag. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He even points out the wicked tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. 
For the one who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the idea here is that Jesus says, you know who I'm going to receive? It won't be the righteous who aren't even righteous. They just think they are because they're not looking honestly at their sin issues. It'll be those who come humbly and say, Lord, I just need mercy. I need grace. I'm lowly. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve it. And he's like, well, then you're going to get it. That's, that's what you need. Let me give you another example in Mark 2.17 to show how your good works aren't going to do it. But Jesus wants you at your lowest point. He wants you when you're aware of your sin. And Jesus uh, heard this. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, which here is a, is a, a, a parable, basically. He's like, hey, if, if you're well, you don't need a doctor, but if you're sick, you do. Well, in the same sense, I came not to call the, to the righteous, but sinners. If you're a good person, you don't need Jesus. Now, you're not a good person, but you may not realize it. So uh, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, to call us wicked people to come and turn to Christ. This is a hugely pivotal issue because you will ultimately reject what Jesus has done for you if you think you're a good person who doesn't need it. Now, I want to be careful how we use the word good person here because I will even sometimes say of someone like, oh, he's a good guy or that's a good person. And I don't mean it in the same sense that we're talking about here with salvation. Well, what I mean is like, you know, compared to other people, he's like a, a good person, you know, but I don't mean like he's morally perfect and holy and he has no sin to account for before God. No, in that sense, none of us is good. Uh, none of us. So let me talk right before we, we, we go to prayer. I want to talk about what, we're, what this results of our salvation are, what we're saved to. And it's more than just forgiveness. If you're thinking, okay, so I get forgiven. Yeah, that, that's part of it. But there's a lot more that goes on there. So let's talk about some of this. First John 3, 1. It says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is the results of turning in faith to Jesus Christ. You believe in him. You trust in him. He's, you make him Lord. You say, you know, Jesus is Lord and you mean it. That when you do this, you become a child of God. You're adopted as his child. You know, you belong to him. He belongs to you and you are forever in his family. Like what more of a loving relationship could you have with God than to be his child? This is an adoption. The Bible has actually a lot of verses that talk about adoption to become children of God, that we're, that we're forever in God's family, so to speak. It's Christianity is very relational. It's very much about having a real living and eternal relationship with God and a loving relationship with other human beings. I mean, that's kind of the core of it all. Another thing we get, not only adoption, we get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is this is um, where you become, and the terms we use are born again. We say born again. What we, we mean isn't that you become a little baby again, rather, but that you were given such a new life as the Holy Spirit, God himself enters into and joins with you, that you become like a new person. You know, First Corinthians tells us, if any man's in Christ, he is a new creation. That we're, we're like, we're new. There's a new dimension, a new thing going on in your life. And this happens when you put your faith and trust in Christ. It may or may not come with warm fuzzies. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't shrink down the work of the Holy Spirit to warm fuzzies. Uh, we're talking about an actual newness of life that comes from the Holy Spirit. Here's a verse that talks about this. Titus three, five, it says he saved us, not because of our works done in, done by us in righteousness, but, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
He gave us the Holy Spirit. This is how he saves us. Is when, you, when you confess the Lord Jesus and you just entrust your life to Christ, he fills you with his spirit. It regenerates or causes a new life to happen in you. And whom the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that I'm now given the Holy Spirit. I have this incredible relationship that happens with God as a result. And this is what Christians talk about all the time. So much so that other religions have started to copycat us, right? Like, like I have a relationship with God. I've heard, I've heard Muslims talk about having a relationship with God, even though their theology just has nothing to do with that, right? This is Christian teaching and this is the ultimate work of the Holy Spirit. So we have adoption. We have indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We talked about earlier, all washed away, all your sins taken care of by Jesus Christ. We also have eternal life eternal life. Now in this regard, eternal life means living forever with God and with God's people in joy and bliss. And it's as good as it gets. Yeah. And this is what God has planned for us. And it's not just like an ethereal existence. You know, scripture says he'll make a new heaven and a new earth, and then we will dwell there in perfect righteousness and fellowship. This is, this is, in other words, it's bigger than than the um, kindergarten version of the gospel that a lot of people have in their head. But it's not more complicated than that. It's so simple, right? You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You don't need to know everything I just shared with you. What you do need to do is make that simple choice, that act of will. God, I'm turning to you and I'm trusting in Christ. I believe he died and rose again and I, I want you as my Lord. You're the one in charge now. And you receive the complete forgiveness and grace that God has given you through Christ. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pray. I'm going to lead in prayer. I'm going to lead a prayer that you can you can affirm simply by affirming it either by repeating it out loud or just by affirming it in your own mind. God knows your mind and your heart. He knows if you're agreeing with these words. And if you are, then it's your prayer too. But before I do that, I want to ask you to do something. If you want to receive Christ, if you want to be saved, if you want to turn your heart and your life to Christ, here's what I want to ask that you do. I want you to pause this video in a second and I want you to have a moment of confession, your own private, honest, personal confession to God, where you're just open and honest about like, you're like the tax collector, have mercy on me, where he was just honest about his sin issues, where you're honest, but you know that you're coming to the God who loves you and the God who will forgive you and wash you, but you're being honest and open about those sin issues. And I want you to have your own prayer where you're asking God for forgiveness, where you're trusting in Christ. And then I'm going to lead in a prayer as well, because some people may have a hard time with that. And I just want to make this as accessible as possible for you. So the count of three, I want you to pause the video. I don't care if you're watching live or not. Pause the video and have your own prayer of trusting in Christ and of repenting of sin, admitting your, your sin issues before God, realizing that you're still going to struggle later, but you'll do it with the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. And he will enable you. So go ahead, pause the video right now. Okay, I'm assuming that's already been done. And what you're going to do right now is agree with me in prayer and let this be your prayer to receive Christ. And you don't have to do this. You can simply turn to Christ without having uttered a prayer, but it sometimes helps people to have like a step, right? That like step of faith where they step out and they go, okay, here's, a, here's the moment for me. And if you want that moment, well, here it is. Uh, you can pray with me now. God, I admit that I have had many sins and rebellions against you and I've I've had moral failings and I don't deserve um, heaven. I, I have judgment coming my way. But I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sin. I believe he rose again from the dead. And I confess that now he is my Lord. 
you are my Lord. I trust you. I thank you for the forgiveness that you've given me through the cross. I thank you for the love that you have shown. I thank you that I am washed and clean. And now fill me with your spirit and let me walk in a new life. Let me live out the the glory of God and the work of Christ through my life for this world to see. Lord, let me be a new person and a new creation. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I want to know if you prayed that prayer with me and if, you know, it's okay if you don't want to do this, but if you'd like to share a comment uh, down below that you did, uh, that would just uh, bless me or send me a a note on BibleThinker.org on the, on the website. That would be a blessing. Uh, Yeah, God is good. Okay. We have a lot of questions from you guys tonight. So I want to try to answer as many of them as I can in the time we've got. Um, Let me get to the top here. Okay. From Solomon Dahlberg, who says, is baptism in the spirit the same as being saved or is it extra equipment for ministry or something else entirely? Um, I I think that the phrase uh, about being uh, baptized in the spirit, there's a sense in which it's just when you get saved, you're indwelt, the Holy Spirit comes into you. And so I think that that's talking about the moment of salvation. But I do think that there's a case in the book of Acts that there are multiple times where someone is said to have been filled with the spirit. And there are some who are filled with the spirit in a unique way, in a different way, in a, in a, in a, in a greater way than not only indwelt, but also sort of this overflowing work of the Holy Spirit in their life. So we see this in, in other places. And I don't know if the right term for that is baptism of the spirit. I think that probably refers to salvation itself. I think for those who prayed and received Christ just now, you were just baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, however aware you're, 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 you are of that, yeah, that was the case. Um, uh, Koketso Mathibi says, are people who believe the prosperity gospel still saved? Well, that depends. Uh, Koketso, a lot of people who believe the prosperity gospel um, aren't really believing in a gospel of prosperity. They just have false expectations about what God will do in this life versus eternal life. Like they're projecting all the eternal blessings into blessings right now. And they're mistaken, so they'll probably be disappointed. But that doesn't mean they have the wrong gospel. They may well have the right gospel. Sometimes the word prosperity gospel is the wrong term. We say, that's why I like to say prosperity preachers and not prosperity gospel. Because they're really not even talking about the gospel. They're just talking about what kind of prosperity they expect in this life. So I'm thankful that you can expect more prosperity in this life than God's promising you without it being a gospel issue. Now, that being said, there are, at the same time, many of these prosperity preachers that do get the gospel wrong. And so it does happen, but it's not necessary. Uh, Martin Vivian says, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, talks about Christ professing charismatic believers. Is enter the kingdom of heaven, salvation, or something else? How did Jesus not know them? Was Where was their faith? I'm really confused by that, but let's read the verse itself. So Matthew 7, read the verse itself. Chapter 7, verse 21. Uh, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven Um, through 23. So on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And he will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these are people who profess they, in a sense, they say with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, but it's only with their mouth. Like it's not a sincere proclamation that Jesus is Lord. Truly, he's not the Lord of their life and they're workers of lawlessness. And he says he never knew them. They've never, they were never saved is the idea in that verse. Um, so is it talking about 
charismatic believers. I don't think it's about at all about casting out demons or prophesying. It's not saying that if you prophesy or cast out demons, you are saved, or if you prophesy cast out, and cast out demons, you're not saved. I think it's it's saying it's irrelevant. It's saying that those kinds of good works are not proving your salvation, your actual relationship with Jesus as genuinely uh, saving you and being your Lord and him knowing you relationally. That's the salvation. Uh, Mariana Rogers says, why do you think as we as humans are apt to believe in part or in full that our works will save us? I think that uh, that's a, that's interesting because just about every, I mean, every religion I know of, every false religion that, I'm, that I've ever spent any time studying, they all teach that you have to have good deeds to ultimately accomplish salvation. Now, they always have grace. They have some measure of grace. Like God has grace on you, but you need to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and one, two, three, or else you're not really going to be saved. And these actions are earning salvation, at least in part. And the Bible clearly refutes this. Like it's totally free, man. Jesus just saves you. He just wants your heart to turn to him. It's just a heart change. And then the life change comes as a result of his work in your life. Um, But your question is why? Why are so many of these religions and different people thinking that they're good works? Um, I think that for those who know that they're lost, that their sins have, then they're much closer to becoming Christians. If they realize that their good works aren't going to do it, they're much closer to being a Christian in the first place. So they're more likely to get saved uh, in the long run. But those who think that they're good, there's, it's a common thing. Uh, Proverbs actually talks about it. It says that each man will proclaim his own goodness. It's normal. It's like people always think they're good people. I've, doing domestic violence counseling, which I did for years, not anymore, but I did for years, I found this to be the case that all the guys in my DV program who most of our world would look at these guys as being like modern day tax collectors, right? Like you abused your your wife or your kids and now you're in a domestic violence program. Like you're the lowest of the low, they would think, right? Well, but these guys don't think they're bad guys. They think they, they like saying things like, well, she's crazy. She's crazy. She, she wants me to hit her. I've heard guys say this kind of thing. And um, when you look at them and you think, how can they be so wicked and think they're good people? And I, I think God looks at all of humanity and says the same thing. Uh, we, we, we tend to adjust our expectations of goodness based on whatever life we're living right now. How good do I have to be? Well, how good am I? That's how good I have to be. I'm good. Devin Nicely says, I have a Mormon friend I've been witnessing to, but he doesn't respond to any of the evidence from your videos and shrugs off passages where the Bible differs from Mormon doctrine. What can I do? Find out what he cares about, Devin. Try to ask him. Say like, what, what, what does matter to you? What do you care about? Um, does he care? Is it important to him that Joseph Smith was an accurate prophet? Is it important to him? Um, is it just the testimony of the spirit that he thinks, he thinks the Holy Spirit has showed him Mormonism is true? Is that the only thing that matters? Is that the only thing that matters? Like find out what matters to him and then talk about that issue. Find out where, why he is actually believing and then deal with that topic. That'd be my recommendation. So use a lot of questions. And don't cut him off. Let him talk. Just go dig in for, to figure out what's going on here. Uh, Damien Chomiak says, you've said it may be Catholics' own lack of knowledge that has saved them. If they believe Jesus suffered, died, and rose again for us, regardless of what they believe about works, wouldn't they be saved? Um, they do believe Jesus died, suffered, died, and rose for them. I think, Damien, what I'd recommend is read the book of Galatians because in the book of Galatians, they're making an error that is about works. It's about thinking that works can save them. Uh, not even initially. They think that they, they initially come to Jesus by grace, but then they think they're going to have to obey the law to like maintain 
um, salvation to be and stay saved. They have to do these good works. And what, what Paul says to the Galatians is that their actual salvation is in question now. And that would be my answer here too. If, if I think my good works are saving me or contributing to my salvation in some significant fashion, then I have to think that what applied to the Galatians seems to apply to me as well. So I'm basing that off scripture. I know that's not a popular view, but what right do I have to say anything other than what scripture is actually declaring here? Yeah. James Farmer says, if Abraham was justified by faith, then why Jesus? Couldn't we just believe like he did and become righteous like Abraham? Yeah, uh, James, you, you can become righteous like Abraham. Abraham had accurate belief in what God had already revealed to him, right? But Abraham wasn't believing in Baal or one of the other false gods that he was aware of at the time. He was believing in the true God who, was, who had revealed himself, the same God who's revealed himself in Christ. Now, if Abraham heard the gospel today, he of course, and I think he has at this point, he of course receives it immediately and believes it because he's already believing in the God who proclaimed it to him in the first place uh, in, in sort of seed form as we get in the Old Testament. And so you could be saved like Abraham. Being saved like Abraham would just be, I have even less knowledge, but I'm still accurately trusting in God, the one who forgives me and washes me. So it's that accurate trust and faith. By the way, it is raining pretty good out here in California right now. This is like an uncommon thing. We've been getting a lot of rain this, this year and last year after a lot of drought, years of drought. Yeah, so uh, read Romans 4 in context, and that's actually what he's saying. In, Paul's talking about in Romans 4. I have a video I have in my Roman series, which I've linked in the description. I have my Roman series down there. Check it out. There is actually um, a verse-by-verse treatment of Romans 4, and I encourage you to check it out. I think that you'll, I think you'll enjoy the series. Uh, Mr. Kev1664 says, What does it mean to believe unto righteousness given? 1 John 3, 7. Let's look at 1 John. And I'll give it to you guys too. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And your question is, what does it mean to believe unto righteousness given? I'm not sure if I understand the question. Um, I will say this, is that um, this has to do, in my opinion, First John, it has to do with when you, yes, it's talking about the one who is saved is doing good works. They're, they're walking in righteous living, right? And they're saved. But he's not saying that's how they get saved. He's saying it's the result of them being saved. So here's how the formula works, right? Here, here's me, unsaved, in my sin, lost. I believe and trust in Christ and I'm given the Holy Spirit. Boom, I'm a new creation and I start living it out in my life. And you see me loving people and walking in more holiness, just naturally turning away from sin. Not that I don't have struggles or setbacks, um, but naturally doing those things. And the reason why I'm living that way is because I've been regenerated. I've, I've become ch a child of God. And First John, he argues, he's like, hey, if you're a child of God, you're going to love like God loves. If you're a child of God, you're going to walk in holiness the way God does. Um, and it doesn't mean you'll be perfect because even in First John, he talks about what to do when believers sin and admits that we struggle with sin. So that's interesting that First John came up, came up last week as well. I think it's a challenging book for us to read. I think it really is. I think he's setting out these two these extremes. He doesn't talk about any middle ground, although there is middle ground or confusing questions to ask about these things. But he wants to really establish the extremes so that we understand that becoming a child of God has, has actual results in our lives. Um, let's see here. Sweet Roll Thief, <clears throat> who um, is a Skyrim player, 
says, is once saved, always saved factual, according to John 10, 28 through 29. Oof. Let me just, I'll, I'll look at just this verse and we'll talk about how it weighs in on the issue. I'm not here commenting on the whole issue as a whole because I'm not sure what my own opinion is on this topic. Uh, John 10, 28 and 29 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who is given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Um, so Jesus says he gives us eternal life and no one can take us away from his hand. Uh, if you if you interpret this really strictly, all it is affirming is that no one else can take you out of God's hand. No one's able to snatch. So no one can take you out of God's hand. This doesn't affirm more than that. It doesn't affirm you cannot ever uh, turn away from Christ willingly or something like that. It just doesn't, I'm not saying it gives you the ability to do that either. I'm just saying it doesn't talk about that. So this verse by itself would say that no one else can threaten your salvation. Uh, that would be, that would be the, the interpretation I would have for this passage. Um, again, I'm not affirming you can lose your salvation here. I'm just talking about that one passage. Leah Lee Hoot, Lean Hoots says, Hey, Pastor Mike, is salvation an instantaneous event or is it a process? Along those lines, how would you teach us to uh, do evangelism? Um, I'm not the guru of evangelism. So when it comes to that issue, I would say just experiment and do more and more evangelism. I mean, evangelism is encountering real people with a variety of scenarios and situations, and you're trying to point them to the goodness of Christ. You may do this through um, your life examples. You may do this through your, um, you're just preaching to them, just telling them the truth. You might do it through with apologetics where you're like defending why they, why they should believe these things to be true in the first place. You might do it through relationship where you come alongside. I, I think there's a massive variety of ways to do it. And I'm not, I'm not the guru of it. Um, but I would say I'd rather have you doing it sloppy than not doing it at all and just going for it. Um, I think that's the thing is just getting us to just go for it. Uh, now, your other question was, is salvation an instantaneous event or is it a process? And it's kind of like all of the above. And so we are in the Bible. It uses the verbs in, in different ways. It says we are saved like past tense. We, we, we've already been saved. It says that we're being saved and it says that we will be saved. And it uses all three of those terms. And I think that the instantaneous part is that I'm given new life by the Holy Spirit. I am washed clean of all my sin and I am given brought into a position with God. Positionally, I'm in Christ. I I know God, I'm saved. But I'm still in this world where I still have sin issues that I fight with the flesh and I deal with all these issues. And in that, I'm being saved. Uh, God is preserving me from the impact of the world around me. I, I need to I need to come alongside this with, with following him and staying close to him, being in the word, that kind of thing. And, um, and, and being obedient in my life, devoting my life to Christ. So I'm like being saved in the process of God working in my life and sanctifying me and all that kind of thing. And then eventually I will be saved. That is when Jesus returns, he's going to set up his kingdom on earth and we're going to enter into the fullness of all that's been promised us. Then we'll have proper prosperity preaching because there will be all prosperity all the time. And that'll be the, the appropriate time for it. And then we're looking at sort sort of my relationship with God, instantaneous salvation. My my uh, process as I go through this life, God is preserving me and He's and He's helping me and He's saving me, so to speak, in a different way. And then eventually I enter into eternal life with Christ, uh, in which case it's like complete. Mouse Crusader has a question. According to Matthew seven twenty one, Jesus says, "Those who do the will of my Father shall be saved." 
I know salvation is, is by grace, but what does it mean to do God's will? And will you go to hell if you don't do something specific, if God commanded you to do something? Um, before I answer this question, I want to point out those of you who you just, you just are putting your faith in Christ right now. And you're like, what, what do I do now? You really do need to get involved in like a local fellowship, a local church. That's important. They're not going to be perfect. And it's okay to just go somewhere and try to figure things out as you go. Um, obviously at the moment, no one's even going to be at church at the moment. I'm talking long-term. You need to be involved in fellowship. If you can't go to fellowships right now because of restrictions, which is understandable, my, my fellowship is not meeting at the moment uh, due to coronavirus stuff. Uh, that's totally fine. I get that. But but start surrounding yourself with Christians in your life. Start connecting with believers. You really need to be around other believers. They will help build you up and strengthen you in your faith and in your walk with God and in this relationship you have now. And also in the be in the word. I've put down in the video description a video called uh, The Bible for Beginners. And I think that one meets people who have little to no biblical knowledge. And it gives them a lot of biblical knowledge in like a one teaching it's a ton of content in there. Help you understand the Bible, the, the whole thing, a lot better. Even believers who've read the Bible a lot might really benefit from that. I think there's a lot of stuff in there for them too. Then I also have a, a series going through the entire book of Romans and a series going through the book of Mark, which I'm still in the middle of right now. Those are things I'd recommend you check out. And they're in the video description. Now, the, the thing here is Jesus says, uh, do my will. He, he says, um, if you don't, Let's, well, let's read the verse. Matthew 7, 21. Okay. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And so it, all I take this to mean is it's not an empty declaration. Jesus is Lord. Like it's empty. This is where God will not entertain mockers, right? Mockers who say they're lying. Jesus is Lord, but it's not really Lord. He's like, no, no, no. You have to actually really make Jesus your Lord. That's like a legit thing you got to do. But if you ask like, what is the will of God? Um, there's this verse I want to take you guys to John six twenty nine. They, all right. Um, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That, that's the work that God wants you to do is belief. The ultimate work is trusting and entrusting yourself to Christ. That's the idea. So I, I hope that that answers that question. God's, God's will for you, the, the will you must do is to trust in Christ. And then out of that flows the work of God in your life of obedience to Christ. Jaden Havener says, Hey Mike, many like Stephen Anderson teach that saying, to repent of your sins isn't biblical and is works-based. What's your opinion on that? I have a whole video on that. Um, I think it was just called like, I think the, actually the, t the thumbnail says like must preach repent. So if you just type Mike Winger and repentance in the search engine, you should be able to get up my video that, that deals with that. And I deal with it in great detail. My short answer is this, is that Jesus preached repentance and repentance is absolutely part of the gospel. I think the confusion is when people think repentance means living perfectly. That, that would be works, right? Repentance isn't even a work. It's an attitude change. It's a heart change. I'm turning from sin to God in my heart. That's the attitude of repentance. The works that flow from that and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, that's not repentance. Um, Steven Anderson, may I say, is a, is a I, I really highly, highly recommend you guys. Nobody click on his videos. Nobody watch his stuff. He has so much really weird, weird, weird and nutty things that he says that I, and I know, I'm not trying to insult the guy, um, of course, obviously, this is insulting to him, but I believe it's just absolutely true. Here's a teacher you do not want to listen to. You don't want influencing you or your family. 
you will think he's solid because in some places you're like, man, that was so good. Man, that was so good. Until he comes out with these wacky weird things about King James onlyism, which is which is not healthy uh, or or true. Creates tons of division in the body of Christ where his weird stuff about repentance and his... Um, I have a, There's a whole flock of his followers who... Are, anyway, they're problematic. I'll put it that way. So yeah, I, I would. I don't think Jaden that it would be wise at all to listen to Stephen Anderson. I think he's on a list of teachers that I recommend everyone completely and utterly ignore. Um, Andrew Hurst says, "How essential is believing in the deity of Christ and the Trinity to salvation? Can you believe God raised Jesus from the dead without believing Jesus is God?" I want to be careful how I answer this. I would say that you can uh, you can be ignorant of the Trinity and be saved, but it's something else to deny the Trinity. So I don't think that you have to understand. Uh, the the the, trin- the tri the God is three persons and one being. I don't I don't think you have to understand that in order to be saved. But that is true about God. And if you are denying that truth about God's very nature and character, it does make me question whether or not a person is really saved when they're uh, overtly and loudly, you know, proclaiming things that are not true about God's very nature or about Christ. I mean, when you when you say God is not God, this is like the reverse of idolatry. Idolatry is taking something that's not God and pretending it's God. But what is this when you take God and you say he's not God? Um, that's pretty serious. Um, it's the re- whatever the reverse of idolatry is. So yeah, being ignorant is one thing, but actually actively affirming lies about Jesus's very nature would sound to me like you're not really saying Jesus is Lord. Like when you say Jesus is Lord, you have to have the actual real Jesus. It's like you got a fake Jesus. You have a, a false version of Jesus. So this wouldn't even be affirming. You know, I trust that Jesus died for me, but you describe Jesus as someone who he totally isn't. Then who are you really believing in? Maybe that's another way to look at it. Kenny Kata says, what if someone believed Christianity was true, but decided that they didn't deserve or want mercy and weren't worthy of being with God forever? Um, they believed it, but they don't deserve mercy. Okay, so first off, let me say, every every Christian thinks they don't deserve mercy. That's the nature of mercy. In fact, if you deserve it, it's not mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, right? If I deserve salvation, it's not mercy. It's not grace. I've earned it. I deserve it. So that's a healthy thing to go, I don't deserve this. I don't, I, I don't, I haven't earned it. I'm just being given freely the salvation of God. That's a healthy, a healthy place to be in. But couple that with this. They don't want mercy because they think they're not worthy of uh, being with God forever. So in other words, this person is saying either I want uh, salvation by being a good person where I'm not even being saved. It's not even salvation. I just want to earn eternal life by being a good person. And if I can't earn it, I don't even want it. I think that there is a serious pride problem going on with that individual most likely. I mean, that sounds like a pride. It sounds like it's humility, but it's not. I think it's actually pride in in the disguise of humility. Lord, you know, if I have to have mercy from you, I reject your mercy. I'm too, here's kind of what it's saying. I'm too good for God's mercy. I'm too high and mighty to bow down and receive the kindness and mercy of God. I think it's a pride issue. Um, and I, I think I would just tell the person that I think you, what you have is a major pride issue. You think you're too good. You're like the person who's, who um, won't ask his neighbor for eggs. Instead, you'll, you'll, you'll act like you have all the food you need. You'll go home, close your door, and let your children starve because you're too proud to accept help from others. I, I think that that's what that comes down to. Michael Francisco says, when I was baptized, I didn't literally say the words, Jesus is Lord, but they asked me something along those lines. And I agreed. Does that count? Absolutely. Uh, the Lord knows your heart. And so that's why the, the, the saying Jesus is Lord, 
with your lips, it doesn't apply totally literally in every situation. So for instance, let's say that somebody's a mute. They're mute. They can't speak. Um, can, well, can they be saved? They can't say Jesus is Lord with their mouths. They can't say, well, I, no, obviously God knows. <laughs> he knows what he's trying to tell us to do, which is to um, have that heart attitude where it's like, Jesus, you're my Lord. That That's the idea. And, and it's good and healthy and important to say it with your mouth as well, but it's not like essential where you have to do that with your lips to be saved. I honestly, guys, no one led me in a prayer when I got saved. I heard the gospel and I believed it. I received it. I did, I did repent, but I didn't, I wasn't really super aware of all those kinds of things. Cause I had no one, I wasn't churched and I didn't have anybody around me to tell me about all that kind of stuff. And so it was just my natural reaction to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And it was years later where I'm like, well, I didn't have someone lead me in a prayer. Am I still saved? And I think the answer is absolutely. Uh, someone leading you in a prayer is not required. What, what's required is the actual response of a living person saying, God, I'm responding to this gospel message. I receive Christ. That's the, that's the thing. Let's see. Jacob Duncan says, I grew up in church and was baptized when I was in elementary school. As a result of being saved, how can I be sure that I was truly born again? Is it okay for me to have these doubts? Um, I think that people who are baptized pretty young um, often go through this trouble. They're like, gosh, was I, wh why did I get baptized? What was really going on? And, and here I think parents have to have a struggle with at what point do they encourage their kids to get baptized? At what point do they give them this, this moment of baptism? And, and I think that that's a, a legitimate thing to wonder about. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Jacob, your baptism didn't save you and your lack of baptism doesn't keep you from being saved. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. It's a super important thing that we do to say publicly, I'm a follower of Christ. I believe in Jesus. I'm proclaiming it right with my life. I'm getting baptized. This represents his death and resurrection and me dying and rising with him. Super, super important to do it. But it's not like, am I saved or not saved based upon whether I'm baptized or not baptized? I have video content on that as well. <laughs> I have a whole debate on baptism. Um, that was four hours long. The that you just put Mike Winger baptism debate, you'll probably find it. So yeah, the real question is this. Right now, Jacob, are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? You believe that he died and rose again. You 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 confess Jesus as Lord, honestly, sincerely. And if your answer is yes, then sir, you're saved. Uh, now live out, not in the confidence of you, what you've done to be saved, but in the confidence of what Jesus has done to save you. Walk in that. Kumbo Munsaka. Kumbo Munsaka says, what does it mean to believe in Jesus and how does one do it? Um, this, this, this is a great question, Kumbo to believe in Jesus is, is I, I consider it having two pieces. that helps me process this. One is an intellectual, like I just affirm that something's true. Like Jesus, he really is the son of God. He really did die on the cross for my sin. He really did rise from the dead. Like I just, I believe those things are true, but it's more than that, right? Cause I'm not just believing things about Jesus. I'm believing in him. And so I went, I, I'm actually having a relational trust in Jesus. I trust him. You, you do this when you get married. When you get married, you choose to trust this person with the rest of your life because you are bound together. So I'm believing in them in a whole different way. And with Jesus, I'm believing in him in a sense of relational trust. I'm relying upon him. I'm choosing to trust in his forgiveness of my sin, his love for me, his provision for my salvation, and his promises for my eternal life, as well as the fact that he died and rose again and that he is the son of God. Uh, JB Bleep says, hey, I'm struggling with assurance of salvation. I just doubt if I'm saved sometimes. Could you talk about this? Um, 
yeah, I think that would be probably a, a whole video sometime that we should, I should probably do on this topic. Um, JB, uh, ask yourself this. Are you struggling for reasons you don't understand? Like, I'm worried I'm not saved. And if I asked you why, you would be like, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. If that's the situation, you don't, you can't put your finger on it, then I just take that as being, um, this is pure emotional doubt or psychological doubt, psychological fears. This has nothing to do with reality because you can't even figure out why you're feeling that way. So let it go. Trust in Christ. This is your choice of trust. He died for you. He rose again. What advice, here's a good thought. What advice would you give to someone else who's experiencing your same struggle? Now give yourself that advice. Now the uh, the other side is that if you're struggling because you feel like you have like sin issues that you're struggling with that you're making you feel like you're not really saved, uh, first thing I would say is this: is that I don't believe in sinless perfectionism. Christians aren't perfectly and perfect and without sin, uh, in no way, shape, or form. That's not the case. We are different because of Christ, and our lives do change and we do grow in Christ. But that doesn't mean we can't be caught up in major sin issues. But if you're caught up in such major sin that it makes you wonder if you're genuine in your commitment to Christ that might not be such an unhealthy thing. And the solution is for you to deal with that sin and to trust in Christ. It's the same solution every time. Turn to Jesus, turn to Jesus, turn to Jesus and trust in him for forgiveness. Brandy Medved says, we are sinners as Christians. Do we go in front of God for judgment or no because of Jesus? Uh, we do in, in First Corinthians, I think chapter two talks about it. Is that, I might have the book and chapter wrong, but um, it's in either first or second Corinthians. And it talks about this, how we stand before God and there is a type of judgment for Christians, but the judgment for Christians is different than the judgment for non-Christians. And I actually have a video on this. It's like judgment day for Christians, I, I think is either on the thumbnail or the title. So if you type that, you might find it, Mike Winger, judgment day for Christians. And you should see it's a shorter clip that deals with this issue of how we're judged. We're not judged to see if we're worthy for salvation. We're actually, God examines the works we've done in in his name to reward us with blessings, not salvation, but with with just blessings, treasures of some kind uh, for the things that we did in his name. Like Jesus said, if you give someone a cup of cold water, you'll have a great reward if you did it in his name. So that's the kind of judgment we're under. It's not to see if we're saved. It's rather for reward. Michael Bakewell says, do we have to keep being saved as we still sin even after believing in Jesus and asking to be saved? I don't think so. I don't think you're like losing your salvation, getting it back over and over again. This is this is in uh, Catholic teaching. This is what, what happens. Um, like if you miss mass, you you don't go, that's a, that's considered a mortal sin. Like you, you've lost your salvation if you didn't show up on Sunday and, uh, and partake of the communion and the Eucharist and stuff. And so then that would be a Catholic view. You're losing and gaining salvation all the time, all the time. Um, and if you die in that sort of mortal sin state, like if you, you, you skipped mass and then later that day got hit by a bus and you haven't had a chance to confess and all this, then you're, you're, you're doomed to hell. Ultimately, um, that's one scenario. Now this is, this is not the case. Thank God. Uh, but our sin does cause relational issues in my walk with God, just like with my marriage, me and my wife, if we're having sin issues between each other, if I'm sinning against her, it hurts my relationship with her, but it doesn't undo our marriage. And it's the same sense for Christians. I think when Christians sin, we hurt our relationship with God, but it doesn't undo it completely. We don't lose our salvation because of those things. All right. Phil Agape has a question. Thank you for answering my question last time about Ephesians 2.8. Oh, you're welcome. Welcome, Phil. Um, I have a follow-up question regard- related to salvation. Does saving faith originate within ourselves? Is someone who's spiritually dead capable of that? 
Um, so this is about issues between Calvinism, Arminianism, and Calvin's, Calvinists are saved, Arminians are saved, and the in-betweener people like myself are saved. This is not a salvation issue, thank God. Um, I think that the Holy Spirit works in us to help lead us towards faith, but I think faith is a choice that we make. I think that that seems to be clear in scripture. You're making a decision to have faith. Otherwise, it doesn't really make sense where Jesus says things like, have faith or believe in me. He tells the disciples, believe in me. Now, obviously he's helping them by being present, by revealing things to them, uh, whatever the work of the Holy Spirit is in their life, he's helping them, but the choice is theirs to make. So all I would say about faith is, while it's uh, in many ways a work of God in my life, I have a decision to make whether or not I will choose to put faith in Christ. That's it. It is a choice I actually make. And I think that seems to be clear just based on the commands to have faith. You're commanded to have faith, have faith, have faith, um, and to choose belief. Uh, Gail Forder says, is faith a work? Is the faith to believe a gift? And Gail, I know exactly where you're coming from. I'm not going to try and get into this whole detail, uh, in detail, this whole thing. But I have a video called... Um, why I think Calvinism is unbiblical. That's the video that you want to watch that talks about this issue in great detail. Is faith a gift? Um, is faith, is it a work if I'm believing in, if I choose faith, is that a work? And the short answer though, if you don't want to watch that video, the short answer is no, faith is not a work. That's the whole nature of faith. The nature of faith is you're just believing. Like I trust you. That's not a work. That's just, it, it's something you do, but it's not a work in the sense of meriting anything. All right. We're running low on time here, but I'm going to try and get through a few of these real quickly for you guys. So Darren P. Piles, here's our, um, our our speed round. Are there any major apologists that you can think of that don't believe once saved, always saved? Um, Michael Brown. Um, a lot of them are on the fence. Like I think I heard Frank Turek talk about it. He seemed like he was on the fence. And I actually don't know what the beliefs are of most apologists on this topic. Um, I think... William Lane Craig, I think he he does not believe once saved, always saved. I think he thinks you can, not that you're going to sin your way out of the kingdom, but rather that you can choose to reject Christ. It's a willful choice. I turn away from the gospel of Christ uh, intentionally. So no one would be like, have I done this on accident? Like it wouldn't be the thing. But there's just, you asked, there's some examples. Montana Padilla says, what is the cost of salvation? Oh, well, well all these things I'm turning from, right? I'm turning from sin to God. So I'm going to have to give up the pleasures of sin. I have to give up the, my rebellion and rebellious ways against God. I may uh, be persecuted. I may lose friendships. I may even lose my life as a result of turning and following Christ. But that cost, as big as it is, is nothing. Nothing compared to what I gain in Christ. Jesus says, what is it worth a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So, yeah. That, that would be the potential cost of salvation. But the cost everyone has to pay is turning from my sinful desires and saying, I want to die to that. I want that part of me to die. I want to live unto God. And that is that is the big cost everyone has to pay. Take up your cross. Tim Jaws. Why would God make us only for us to be sinners separated from him at birth? And the only way to be in union with him in this is this one specific way, which is most which most people will not believe in. Well, Tim, I, I want to answer partially by saying uh, first this, there's, it's not really my job, to be honest, to be able to answer why God would do one thing versus another. Like it's, it's a good question. I'm interested in the question, but it's a wrong expectation if you think that we can, like because I'm a Christian or a pastor or because I make videos about God that I can answer every question about God. 
why did God make it so that dogs had tails and, and, and not longer noses? Like, I, I don't know why he did things the way he did in many cases. And there's just some measure of humility that's healthy there for us to realize it's okay to not understand why God does something. Okay, the, the more important thing is, did God do that? Like, did God actually make it so that Jesus is the only way? And the answer I think there is yes. I do think there's hope for those who've never heard the gospel. I have a video on that. Uh, what about those who never hear the gospel? That's the title of that video if you're interested. But why, why would God make us sinners at birth and the only way for union is through Jesus? I think it has to do with a lot of things and only some of them I'm probably aware of. But some of them would be the reality that mankind now has a free will choice to make. We all actually have to choose whether we want God or not. So that when I enter into a relationship with God, it is, it is not something forced upon me by nature of my birth, but it is a relationship chosen by love, chosen by acceptance of his kindness towards me. And so it's available to all. It's freely available. And there is hope for those who've never heard the gospel that, like I said, I got a video on that. So I think it has to do with establishing true and freely loving relationships. And I think we all recognize that that's a really valuable thing. That, that one Christian says, I want to be saved and changed through Christ. Sometimes I feel like I'm not saved. What can I do to better follow Christ and to, um, to know I'm saved? I feel like I don't understand the severity of hell. Well, that's okay if you don't understand the severity of hell. I probably don't either. Um, it's not our job to just meditate on that stuff all day long. Um, not, I mean, we need to understand that it's severe. But, but do I fully understand the severity of hell or, or the glory of heaven? I probably don't fully understand either, to be honest. I do want, want to be aware of them, though. But you said, um, sometimes I feel like I'm not saved. Um, well, it looks like you might be, and I'm just going to guess, that you might be trying to measure your salvation based on how you feel. Now, this is important. There's, there's that question people ask you when you have a birthday, right? I just turned 52. I just turned 20, 21. I just turned 19. Whatever it is, and they come to you and they say, and they still ask it, do you feel any different? And it's funny because we're like, no, like I don't, it's one day. Like I don't really feel any different. And none of us thinks if I don't feel like I'm 21, then I must not be 21. And I've had t plenty of times where I don't feel like I'm this age or that age, but I'm still that age, whether I feel like it or not. I, and especially as you get older, people ask you how old you are and you give them the wrong number because you just don't, you aren't paying attention anymore. But it doesn't change anything about the objective fact that you are that thing or that age. In the same sense, if, if you're a Christian and you have put your trust and faith in Christ, he has saved you. Even if you're sitting there going, do I feel saved? Do I feel saved? Well, what do you think feeling saved feels like? Do you think it feels like reading the Bible and having a really good moment or having a wonderful time of worship? I've had those moments and I felt like I was saved at that moment, but not at another. I just want to say, don't, don't trust in your feelings about your salvation. Trust in the death and resurrection of Christ. Trust in the death and resurrection of Christ. You will not find much to trust in if you're relying on your feelings. And that'll affect marriage and it'll affect all sorts of things in life. You'll be, you'll be, uh, you'll have a hard time sticking to things um, for what it's worth. I, I hope I'm helping you out here as I share these things. Um, what can you do to better follow Christ and, and know that you're saved? I think the knowing you're saved come back, comes back to the original gospel message. Not by works, by his incredible grace. You're just trusting in him and you're like Jesus, your Lord. Now, the better follow Christ thing is going to be about putting off sinful behaviors and, and taking on seeking first God's kingdom with your life, doing things that are for God in your life and, and whatever you are doing in your life, doing it for God. There's a short answer. I hope you'll meditate on what I just said there. Uh, Benjamin Handelman. Hey Ben, 
says, uh, can you discuss how you see Galatians 5, 6 to the definition of faith in relation to salvation? All right. All right. We're going to try and do this. We're about to uh, call it quits here pretty soon. I think, I don't know, I'm going a lot longer than I originally planned, but we had so many questions tonight. So Galatians 5, 6 says, uh, oh, I'll put it up for you guys too. Here it comes. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Um, how does it account? How does it work for salvation? I don't think that he's okay. So let me just guess. You're saying, okay, maybe the phrase faith working through love means that what gets me saved is faith working through love. But that's not what he's talking about in this passage. I don't think, I think he's saying that the thing that God wants you to do is, um, in your faith in Christ, now go out there and love and serve others. And that counts like God cares about that. But as far as whether you're circumcised or not circumcised, God doesn't care. It doesn't matter. I think that that would be the idea. So the Galatians are dealing with two issues. One is they want, they want to obey the law to be saved. And the other is they think obedience to the law is also important to God for sanctification. And in Galatians, he's dealing with both of those problems. So I think verse six probably deals more with the sanctification issue or pleasing God in my daily life. It's not about being circumcised or obeying the Old Testament law in its all its particulars. It's rather about uh, the faith I have working through love. I hope that helps, Ben. So I don't think it relates to how we're saved. First, verse 29, question 29. Jennifer Lynn Smith says, what to say to someone who honestly thinks they've been a good person their whole life and doesn't understand their own sin? Um, I like to go with their own conscience. So you might ask them, have you ever done anything that you knew was wrong? Now, if they say no, then I don't know what else you can do for them except to say you're full of baloney, right? Like, of course, you've done things that you knew were wrong, Right. And if they say, I'm a good person, I'll think, then just ask them. Say, well, then do you mind telling me all the stuff you've done that you knew was wrong? And of course, they're not going to want to tell you. And you don't really want to hear it anyway. I think you're just asking a question like that to help them see that they're not only aware of sin, but they're ashamed of it as well. God's given us a conscience that helps us to be aware of those things. So if they think they've been a good person their whole life and they don't understand their own sin, start with what they what they know of. God in Romans 1, it says that God gave, um, and in Romans 2, that God has given the conscience to mankind in order for us to become aware of sin so that we can realize we've fallen short so we can know that we need Jesus. So use her conscience, use this person's conscience or his. Andrew Basham, hey Mike, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom. That kind of frightens me. And I was wondering if I still fall victim to sin every now and then, am I still saved? Um, my short answer, lightning round, yes, you're still saved. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is talking about the those who are living in rebellion. They haven't made that decision to make Jesus Lord, to trust in Christ. They're living rebellious lives against the will of God. They're not going to be saved. There's always the chance that someone says Jesus is Lord with their mouth, but they're still living that lifestyle, indicating that perhaps they're never, they never were saved. It was empty proclamation of faith. And that may be the case uh, for some people. And I think that first Corinthians is getting us at that warning. David Fester in the book of Acts, the apostles laid hands on people for them to receive the Holy Spirit. How does this work today? Well, they did lay hands on people. And I think it had to do with because they were the apostles. Now you can lay hands on someone, but they didn't. Uh, well, hold on before I answer that second part. The apostles didn't always do this. Um, the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and all these Gentiles and the apostles didn't lay hands on them at all until afterwards. So there's times where, where the Holy Spirit's just, you know, and Jesus, when he gave the Holy Spirit to the disciples at the end of John, he just breathes on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. So this laying on of hands isn't necessary. 
But it was important because it shows that the apostles are the ones carrying the first gospel message and it assures, hey guys, the message these guys are sharing, that's the real gospel. I want you to stick to that and never change it. That would be the importance of the apostles in that scenario. So yeah, so then I don't think that we, I think we can do that, lay, lay hands on people. I don't think it, it's required. Gregory Nicholas says, Pastor Mike, what about uh, hidden sins we don't see that I don't confess? How can I answer that biblically for someone? Um, you're always going to have stuff that you're not even aware of that was sinful. And all you can do is you can come to God and say, Lord, for everything I'm aware of, I confess to you and everything else, I, I, you know my weakness and you're just honest with the Lord about it. Um, and what else can you do? God knows and God meets you right there. I don't think any of us have ever confessed every sin and nor will we because we're not even aware. God knows. So you come with that awareness of general sin that you need to take to God. Now, the Old Testament law talked about um, the people of Israel, that if they're committing a sin that they suddenly, that they don't know is a sin and they later realize it's a sin, it's like now they're going to come and they're going to deal with it at the temple with sacrifice. So the idea is this, if you ever become aware of some sin that's been hanging out in your life for a while and you're suddenly aware of it, and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe, then you come to God and you deal with it. Jeff Ross says, if you completely have faith in God and believe in him wholeheartedly, but a certain sin constantly has been a vice in your life for decades, does it affect salvation? Um, Jeff, that's it. Here, here's the reason why this is challenging. Because I think there are Christians, I, I'm confident there are Christians who will say, that's me. And I would say, you are still saved. But there are also probably other people who are simply not even Christian. And they want forgiveness, but they've never committed their lives to Christ truly. And they're like, that's me, and I want to feel better about me staying in my sin. And so there comes this like gray area where I don't really know how to counsel people well. I want to say, <clears throat> the grace of God covers you. Trust in Christ. Your sinlessness does not you know, create or maintain your salvation. But then there's also another side where I want to say, but there is some point at which a person says, have I really committed to Christ? Like, is this genuine? Did I really mean it? And for that person, I say, the solution is not to beat yourself up and die on, on, on this hill of your sin. It's to repent and trust in Christ and be forgiven. That's either way, the solution is the same. You turn to Christ, deal with that sin issue. Yeah. But you will struggle. Every Christian I know struggles with sin today. And they're going to struggle in a decade and in two decades and three decades. So that, that in and of itself is not indicating you're not saved, I don't think. Miguel Ponce <clears throat> says, and we're almost done here, guys, for reals this time. Uh, what would be the quick and easy way to respond when a non-believing friend asks me if God chooses who is saved? Um, it would be, it would be to say, um, um, is there that, okay, there's actually, you wanted the quick, easy response. I want to give you like the five minute lowdown. Um, to say, God chose to tell you to choose him. Like this is a choice that he says you need to make. That was his decision that you have a choice to make. And if he's doing this to like, like an immature child, well, you chose who will be saved and who wouldn't be saved, and da, 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 da. then they're then they're they're confused. He's confused. I'm not a Calvinist though, so I don't have to uh, debate about that as much as they would. But God chose for you to make a choice about salvation. <clears throat> Darren P. Pyle says, "Question: What's the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation? Well, he before we're saved, he convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, so he makes us aware of our need for Jesus. He also can just help affirm to us in some awareness of the truth of Christ." When we put our faith in Christ, he indwells us, he regenerates us, makes us a new person, and then he dwells within us, empowering us to serve and follow Christ, to live out the life of Christ, in other words, to be, to be Christians and live like a Christian. 
to say no to sin and to walk in the spirit. So the, so the goodness of a Christian's life, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, that's the fruit of the spirit in our life. Also, he helps us in our prayers and helps us in our communication and fellowship with God. So, and he enables us with gifts and the ability to serve God as well. Donald J says, I love you, Mike. When I listen to you teach and preach, my spirit's always lifted. God's using you for great things. Donald, I'm, I'm humbled uh, and I'm not worthy uh, to be used in, in big ways. But God is glorified in using broken and flawed people to accomplish wonderful things. And I'm uh, humbled. <clears throat> so thank you for the encouragement. Cassie says, <clears throat> if we become saved for years and never move from milk to solid foods, are we still saved? I think so. I just think that we're not producing much fruit uh, as far as for, you know, uh, uh, rewards. Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words here. Uh, as far as getting rewards in our in our future, things that you can, you can say, God, look what I did for you. This was for you. And you can glorify him with it. You're not doing much in that regard. And I have uh, some teaching online where I talk about that. But I can't remember what video it's in. Yeah, the idea of a carnal type of a Christian. Uh, Michael Francisco, last question. When I studied the Bible, I wasn't allowed to be baptized because they felt I hadn't fully repented or submitted since I didn't break up with my boyfriend like they suggested. Is this biblical? Um, that's tough, um, Michael. Um, that's really tough for me to answer because I don't know you and I don't know your situation well. And so, I mean, it could be that not being willing to, to deal with a sin issue in your life that that's revealing that you're not really submitting to the Lordship of Christ. That's possible. It's also possible that this was just, you're progressively becoming more and more Christ-like over time, and they should just set that aside and have you baptized as you confess. But it's a little difficult to come to Jesus and say, you're my Lord, but here's, here's the area of my life you can't have, and I'm going to do whatever I want with it. Um, I would hesitate too. When I baptize people, I would ask them, you know, like, do you turn from a life of sin to a life of following Christ? And And if they say, Eh, only a little bit. Well, then I probably would stop the baptism. So I, I think we have to wrestle with those things. So guys, I'm going to do another video tomorrow. And the plan is, the plan, God willing, is is 1 p.m. with Natasha Crane. We're going to talk about parenting your kids as Christians. In particular, uh, a book resource, um, hold on, right here, talking to your kids about Jesus. We're going to talk about her book, Natasha Crane. Um, brilliant and really, really helpful work for raising your kids in Christ. And I think that this is the kind of thing where you, if you're a parent, I want you to be there. I hope that you'll be there or that you'll watch the replay later. So that's tomorrow at 1 p.m. And um, yeah, that's about it. Lord bless you guys. I hope this has been a help and a blessing to you. And maybe t maybe tonight you got saved. Maybe tonight you've been, you've been born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You've begun your walk with Christ as part of the family of God. Then we rejoice with you and we're your family too. And uh, we praise God. So have a good one. 